You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Invites you to turn to Genesis 46. We're not going to try to tackle the whole chapter this morning. In fact, I think maybe it would be prudent if we backed up a little bit to um, verse 25 would probably be a good spot. Chapter 45. Why don't we start reading there? Uh, Chapter 45, verse 25. And we'll read through chapter 46, verse 7. Verse 7. We won't get to the genealogy this morning. Genesis 45, verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all of the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, and we pray, Father, that you would be pleased to bless us with understanding and insight, that, Father, you would be pleased to Apply your word to our hearts, Father. Uh, We sit here under you all in many different places, Father, some of us in the same place. Father, you know where each of us is. And Father, we pray that you would uh, speak to each of us, Father, from your word this morning, that we would hear your, your lovely voice, and that, Father, we would indeed uh, receive a blessing from your voice. Oh, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I have a question I would like really to start with, and it's a question that um, we kind of like to linger in our, our uh, minds um, as we look at our text this morning, and the, the question is simple. It's, it's how do we move forward in our faith 
when our feelings are saying no. Does that make sense? Uh, How do we move forward in our faith when we don't feel like it? Has anybody been there before? See a few heads. I was open. I was open. I wasn't the only one. How do we move forward in our faith when we're scared to move forward in our faith? You ever been there? What if making this next step brings X, Y, and Z? How do we move forward when we're scared? Um, How do we move forward when it looks like moving forward is going to cause us to lose what, at least in the estimation of our hearts, are the good things that this life has to offer. Maybe some of us have been there before. Uh, But whether you've been in any of these places or all of them, if you're walking with Jesus, chances are very favorable that you will find yourself in these um, situations. How do we move? Let's just let that question linger in the back of our our minds and our our hearts as as we go along. Um, context, context and context, right? Three very important things when studying our Bibles. I don't think if, if I reminded you of that five times every Sunday, I'm not sure I, could, I would be reminding uh, you or myself enough how so very important context is. Um, where have we been? We have been really cruising through Genesis. Um, we've been taking large sections at a time, large narratives at a time, and um, we've been on the edge of our seats in many ways as we've been following along with Joseph down in Egypt. And Joseph, uh, who has really proven to be quite a pastor, hasn't he? Um, he, he really has. And actually, in an amazing way. I, I, I will confess, I've never seen that until this particular study, like I've seen it now. And um, he, he really has proven to be quite the pastor. And he's been leading his brothers into repentance. And finally, two weeks ago, we saw where the brothers led by by Judah, what do they do? They come clean, don't they? They repent. They repent. And they repent before God. And they repent. Their repentance is true repentance because they cast themselves down upon the mercy of God. Here we are. We're guilty as charged. All we can do is throw ourselves down upon the mercy of God. One of the scariest things that a person can do, isn't it? Because in our unbelief, we say, well, God, will you really pick me up? Will you really pick me up if I throw myself down upon you? Will you really pick me up? Well, they they come to that place where they throw themselves down. Will God pick them up? Of course he picks them up. And that leads to the next thing that we saw last week. What does, what does Joseph do? As soon as he hears this true repentance, what does he do? He identifies himself. He says, I am Joseph. I am your brother. And, of course, there, we, we, we looked at that in detail. We won't look at it this morning, but um, they, they, they're reconciled, aren't they? They're reconciled. And we're going to find out as we continue on in the study that this reconciliation isn't perfect, that there, there's, there's still things that are going on that we're going to see as we go along. 
But reconciliation takes place, doesn't it? And what does, Joseph, what does Joseph say to his brothers? Listen, I want you to go up. I want you to get dad. I want you to get the rest of the family. I want you to bring them down so that uh, you guys can be down here with us. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you because there's five more years of famine. You'll come to poverty. You'll starve to death out there. Grab everything up. Come on down. And what is really amazing is that we see that the Lord is even working in the hearts of Pharaoh and his servants. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 45, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. You see that? It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. That's an amazing thing. Let's not just pass over that because that is really an extraordinary thing because I can think of a lot of reasons why Pharaoh wouldn't like this idea. It's going to distract Joseph from his work. Maybe Joseph has shared the story of his brothers with Pharaoh. It's probably likely that he has. I mean, at some point in time, the elephant in the room has to be, Joseph, what are you doing in jail? I see the Holy Spirit with you. I see God's Spirit with you. I see the wisdom of God with you. My only question is, why are you in an orange jumpsuit? Seems like an odd place for you to be. I, I would think there had to have been some kind of explanation at some point, wouldn't you? of what he was doing there. And that has a tendency for us to harbor uh, all kind of stuff towards the perpetrators, doesn't it? But notice God's working in the hearts of Pharaoh. He's working in the hearts of, Pharaoh, of Pharaoh's servants. They're all on board. Verse 17, Pharaoh amazingly says to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts, go back to the land of Canaan. Verse 18, take your father, your households, come near to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And then in verse 19, you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come and have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And how does that play out? Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. Because they're always tearing their clothes, aren't they? That'd be handy. Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. What is going on here? They're being lavished with all these gifts, aren't they? And I said a little bit about this last time, but let's go a little further with this. Because if as unbelievers, we could only come to recognize the gifts that are in Christ Jesus, we wouldn't be so afraid to let go of all of this miserable stuff that we hold on to. Which goes back, it begins to answer the question, how do we move forward in our faith when we're afraid, or when our feelings don't feel like it, or when we don't feel like it. What is happening here? The brothers repent. They cast themselves down upon the mercy of God. And ever since they've done that, they're getting blessed beyond their imagination, aren't they? They were worried that Joseph was going to steal their donkeys. Like Joseph was interested in their donkeys. And what is Joseph doing? At He's loading them up with more donkeys, giving them the good things of Egypt, giving them wagons, 
giving them changes of clothes, giving them everything that they need for the, for the journey up and the journey back. In other words, everything they need for their pilgrimage. It's not hard to see the application of that, is it? Oh, if you will just trust me, if you'll only trust me, I, I will give you everything you need. It's not going to be easy. A wagon is being provided for Jacob, but he's still going to have to bounce all the way down in it, isn't he? Down to Egypt. And here we are, if you're walking in Christ Jesus, he's giving you a wagon, so to speak, if I might speak figuratively that, but we do have to bounce in it across the bumps, don't we? This is amazing. So in verse 25, we come to where we've begun this morning. So they went up out of Egypt. They came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Now, I spoke about this a little bit last week, and I think that all that I said was simply, you know, this would be hard to believe. And it's not like these guys have a great track record of always telling the truth, right? So Jacob doesn't believe them at the start. But there's more going on than this. I submit that there's much more going on than this. And let's, let's look at this a little more carefully. Notice that, jo that Jacob's heart became numb. I think we can understand that. They're, they're striking on a chord that is very painful. It's a very painful chord. They're talking about Joseph, this son who was lost 22 years ago or so. And that would be a subject where people... Listen, there's not going to be no nonsense about that. I don't think anybody would have any kind of appetite for any kind of nonsense about that. Any kind of, don't, that, that, this isn't something to joke about. This isn't something to be flippant about. But when they persist that Joseph is alive and reigning in Egypt, I, I think that would might have a tendency to engulf you in numbness. But I still think there's more going on than that. Uh, James Boyce, in his commentary on, on this passage, he points out something about Jacob's nature that has been going on all along that I think is very insightful and I think it's very helpful for us. He points out that Jacob is the kind of guy that likes to embrace bad news. Let's think about that for a minute. Have we seen that tendency in Jacob? I've got to go back to see my father. But then there's this Esau issue. You remember all that? Esau is his brother. He cheated his brother. You remember that? I got to go back. There's this Esau issue. I'm going to divide everybody up into droves. I'm going to send. Why, why is he doing all that? Why does he drive everybody up in droves? Why does he go through all this? Why does he send scouts out to see if Esau is coming? Why does he do all that? Because he's scared. It's easy for him to believe that Esau is going to come and he's going to ruin him, isn't it? And then he finds out that Esau is coming and he has 400 men with him. And what conclusion does Jacob come to immediately? He's coming to fight. So we see, we can see, and, and, and listen, it's, 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 it's easy for us to see why Jacob falls into this. But typically, Jacob falls in and believes, he has a tendency to believe the worst. Now, all of us have a tendency to do that, don't we? But some of us have a tendency to do that more than others. 
Now, what are the implications of that? If that describes you, what are the implications of that for your faith? There are many implications of that for your faith because how do you move forward in your faith when you paint the darkest thing on everything that's coming down the pike? It's going to paralyze you. See, How do we shake out of that? If that describes us, what do we do with that? How do we work our way out of that? Is there something that we can do? I think our text is very instructive. And let's analyze it a little bit further. Because uh, Boyce in his commentary, he points to emotions in this. What is Jacob doing? He's listening to his emotions. And he points, Boyce points, actually to C.S. Lewis's writings back in the 40s and in the early 50s. C.S. Lewis, one of his most famous works, is Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity... Uh, C.S. Lewis does point to the fact that our emotions often fight against our faith. Think about that. Now, we're ascribing this to him, but I could say, listen, many of Puritan writers have actually covered this ground long before C.S. Lewis did. It's not like this, this is some insight that was gained in the 40s. Um, it's, it's, it's been gained many, 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 many years ago by many authors. But notice the tendency of our emotions to fight against our faith. Friday night seemed like a great idea to come to church. It seemed like a great idea to come to church. I don't know what happens between Friday and Sunday morning, but Sunday morning comes and I don't feel like coming to church. What's going on? Emotions fighting against faith. Back to, to Jacob. Notice in verse 26, his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. Now, let's think, let's think about that for a moment. When they told him all the words of Joseph, as they started telling him all the words of Joseph, my guess is if you sat down and listened to Joseph talk, it would sound radically different than sitting down with these guys and listening to them talk. My guess is it sounds a lot different listening to Joseph than it does listening to them. And there is Jacob listening to them, giving him the words of Joseph. And what's he going to think of that? Wait a second. This doesn't sound anything like this bunch. That actually sounds like Joseph. You guys don't talk like that. What's happened to you guys? You see, there's a conversion that has taken place. They're different men. You guys don't sound like you used to sound. You're, you're repeating things that I've never even heard you say. And then he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him. The wagons. What's up with the wagons? And come to think of it, you guys got all these clothes. Where'd you get these clothes? And Benjamin, where'd you get all that money? What are you doing with all this money? And fellas, you guys not only have the money you took with you the first time, you've got the money you took with you second time. Where'd you guys get all this money? Your first thought might have been, what did you guys go down there and do? Did you go down there and steal all this stuff? That may be your first thought, but that quickly gets thrown out whenever they say, listen, Joseph wants us to come back to Egypt. Now, if they went down there and stole all that stuff, 
They're not going to be wanting to go back down to Egypt now, are they? What else could Jacob conclude? Notice what happens. The spirit of their father revived. Look at verse 28. Who is Jacob called in verse 28? He's called Israel. We've seen that over and over again, haven't we? Jacob wrestles with God, and when it's all over, God renames him, doesn't he? What's he naming? He names him Israel. He names him Israel. And here in this text, Jacob, as he's faltering, he's referred to as Jacob. But as his spirit within him is revived, he is now referred to as Israel. And what does he say? It's enough. He believes. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. But there's a few verses between verse 28 and um, verse 5 of chapter 46, isn't there? He's resolved to go, but does he feel like going? Is his emotions messing with him? Is there any fear taking place? Let's read along. Notice that in chapter 46, verse 1, Israel took his journey with all that he had he had and came to Beersheba. And I'm going to, if you allow me a digression just for a moment, I'm going to go a little ahead of myself. I'm going to go ahead to where we're going to be probably next time. Uh, Lord willing, whenever that next time is. Um, Israel here in verse 1 is speaking of Jacob. It is speaking of an individual. But there's a connotation that is coming from this word now, Israel. There's a connotation there that is speaking to Israel, not necessarily only as an individual, but as a nation. And I say this just to warm us up, because what we have happening here at the end of, uh, we're beginning really, it's hard to say exactly where it begins, but with these last final chapters, let's just put it this way. What we have happening here is a, is a transition into the book of Exodus, a transition of a family, if you will, coming and becoming a great nation is what we have happening. So just let that kind of linger in your minds as we, as we continue. Uh, Lord willing, three weeks from now, we'll continue. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Now, what is so special about Beersheba? Beersheba is the place that's named by Abraham, and this takes us way, way back. This is where I really started to realize how much material we've gone through, because this takes us all the way back to chapter 21. Do you remember some of us, I think all of us were here for that. Chapter 21, that seems like forever ago, doesn't it? Chapter 21, Abimelech comes to Abraham with his commanding officer, and um, he wants to make a covenant with Abraham. Why? Well, because Abraham has just got done, for lack of a better term, kicking Heine all over Mesopotamia. What did he do? You remember Lot got carried away by King Kedar Lahomer. And Kedar Lahomer was coming down and he was, he was really attacking every town and kind of ravishing every town as he made his way down to Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he ravished them and he carted Lot and everybody away. And what does Abraham do? He musters his men. He goes up and he, he conquers Kedar Lahomer. Now, what happens is Abraham returns. What happens is Abraham returns. People are starting to look at him a little differently. Now he's not just simply a family head or a tribal chieftain, if you will. He's starting to appear like 
more like a nation. And Abimelech thinks, you know, I think it'd be wise for me to go and maybe make a treaty with them and a covenant with them. And he does that. And as he does it, Abraham brings up this issue with the wells. And they call the place Beersheba, which means well of oath or seven wells. But more, but, but more uh, uh, in Isaac, if we think back of Isaac's life in, in Genesis 26, it's in Beersheba where the Lord renews his covenant of grace with Isaac, isn't it? Which is very significant. And let me ask you this. Where is Jacob living when he is blessed by his father Isaac? Does anybody remember? If, if you don't remember, just say Beersheba. It's in Beersheba. This is a special place. It's in Beersheba where, I, where Jacob, he's a deceiver. He deceives his father, he deceives his brother, but he receives the blessing, and it's from there he goes up to Haran, and in Haran he finds Rachel, and it's, you know, you know the rest of the story from there. Now, Beersheba is located, it's one of the towns, one of the southernmost towns in Canaan. You know, as you travel down, you come through Beersheba, and then basically you're in the Negev, and then you're in the wilderness of Shur, and then you go down into Egypt. It's all desert after that. But what's interesting is that Jacob stops at Beersheba. And what does he do there? He worships. And this is key to answering our question. On Sunday morning when we wake up and we don't feel like coming, what do we do? You worship. You do what you don't feel like doing. Because I'll tell you what will happen if you do what you don't feel like doing. You'll end up feeling like doing it again. Do you understand what I mean by that? That could be vague. Let me put it another way, because I've been there. I don't feel like coming this morning. But you get ready, you get dressed, and you come. And what happens? Oftentimes, it's funny how it works. You get blessed. You get this, you get this incredible blessing. Not always, but you get blessed. If you don't go, you're going to feel guilty all day about it justifying it, doing all this, doing all that, none of which is helpful for moving forward in our faith, is it? What's Jacob doing? He's worshiping. Why is he He's offering sacrifices to God at this special place, this place where God has met him before, where God has met his family before. It's, it's a place that's special. He offers sacrifices. And look what happens in verse 2. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. Notice how, he, notice how he, he addresses him. Jacob, Jacob. So tenderly. Jacob, Jacob. Jacob, Jacob. Jacob says, here am I. Then the Lord says in verse 3, I am God, the God of your father. What is he saying there? I am the covenant-keeping God. I am the God who made this covenant of grace with your grandfather Abraham. I am the God who reiterated that covenant and passed it down to your father Isaac. And I am the God who is re who's reiterating it and passing it down again to you. I am the God of the covenant of grace. I am the God of grace. I am the God of mercy. And what does he say to him? I do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, why would God say to Jacob, do not be afraid? Well, its answer is very simple. It's because he's afraid. And he's got good reason to be afraid. When we're elderly like this, do we want to bounce on a wagon all the way to Egypt? 
And besides that, he doesn't know anything about the position Joseph's in. You know, in these kind of places, people are always jockeying for power. People are always wanting power. We're enduring that right now, where everybody's just just bloodthirsty for power, and they don't care about anything else but getting into power. And Jacob understands that's the way these places are. And right now, maybe Joseph's in power. Maybe tomorrow he won't be. And then what's going to become of us? Or as Robert Candlish years and years ago suggested, maybe there'll be a policy change. And when there's a policy change, where will Joseph be? He's a Hebrew. He's not an Egyptian. Where is he going to be when that takes place? Or how about this? When the famine is over, what are they going to do with Joseph then? Are they going to have any need for him? Or we could even say, babe, Egypt, of all places, Lord, you've promised me Canaan. And now you're moving me out of Canaan and you're putting me in Egypt. I think we ought to talk more about that next time than now. But we can still see it as a concern, can't we? Uh, Egypt is emblematic for sin and worldliness and all that. Not that Canaan is... mm, Canaan's pretty much too, but we can see his reason for fear. But what has Jacob done? He has worshipped. He has gone to church. He has worshipped. And the Lord has spoken to him. And the Lord has given him promises, hasn't he? He is promising, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. He gives him this promise. It's in Egypt that I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I will also bring you up, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What is going on here? What's going on here is the covenantal promise where God says, listen, Jacob, I am your God. You are my people, and I am going to dwell with you. And that's the covenant promise that goes all the way through Genesis, all the way through the rest of the Bible, all the way to uh, the book of Revelation. And I'll just, just wait for it. As we're reading through the book of Revelation, we're going to come to that covenant promise as we near the end where God says, I am making my dwelling among men, or I am making my dwelling with men. I am going to be their God, and they are my people. That covenant promise is applied to Jacob's feelings, isn't it? That covenant promise is applied to Jacob's feelings feelings. And what does Jacob do? Verse 5, he set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, and their wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock, their goods, which they had gained in the land, and and you can read the rest in verse 6 and 7. They set off to go. So what do we do? How do we move forward when our feelings are saying no? What do we do? What do we do? We read our Bibles anyway. We pray anyway. We come to worship anyway. Please don't ever stop coming to worship. If you stop coming to worship, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're cutting yourself off. We might not feel like doing it, but let's do it. What do we see Jacob doing here? Offering sacrifices in Beersheba in that special place. That's what we see him doing. Listen, when people fall away, one of the first things they do, they stop reading their Bibles, they stop praying. Not long after that, they stop coming to church. And then what happens? It's not long before they're 
carried away. If we are disciples of Jesus, that means we are a follower of Jesus. And doesn't the idea of following Jesus suggest motion? Doesn't it suggest movement? Doesn't it suggest that we're going forward? I mean, we could speak of this. We could speak of following closely behind Jesus. We could speak of falling off to the left or the right and maybe coasting. But you know, there's a, there's a, there's a third category I think we could, we could think of too, and that third category is putting it in park. Putting it in park. And sometimes that's what our emotions will do to us. Our emotions will say, wait a second, if you go further with this, if you go further with this following Jesus stuff, you better stop because there's, there's consequences coming ahead. And you want to know something? That could be very well true. That could very well be true. You want to know what my goal was before I came to faith? I'll share it with you. I've shared it with so many of you, practically all of you know it anyway. I wanted to be a millionaire by the age of 40. That was my goal. That's why I got out of bed. I was well on my way, by the way. I, I, I was well on my way. And then the Lord intervened. Well, wait a second. I remember thinking to myself, wait a second, if I follow Jesus, um, I'm going to have to let go of a lot of things. I let go of them. And he brought me a wagon. Brought me a wagon. Have you let go? Because if you do, He'll bring you a wagon. He'll lavish gifts upon you. The suspension on the wagon is not always so good. It bounces. But I haven't given up anything, friends. I mean, as I look at you, you want to know why I'm crying? It's because I have you. I have all of you. And I have brothers and sisters I haven't even met who've gone before me and who will come after me if the Lord waits. But I have all you. What is a million bucks in comparison to you? And I haven't even started talking about Jesus yet. Because of all we had was Jesus, then I would still be weeping. That Jesus... That Jesus would make me mine? That Jesus would say, Rick, I am going to be your God. What? No, I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be mine. But wait, Rick, there's something i got to do first before we can make this happen. I've got to come and i got to live this perfect life. i got to live this perfect life so I can take this perfect life up to the cross, to the altars of my justice, so I can scrub you up, Rick. So I can clean you up. I can't bring you in the way you are now. I got to go to the cross. I got to die so that I can clean you up, so I can wash you and make you clean. I'm going to die on that cross, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. 
Then I'm going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where I'm going to be in possession of absolute authority. And there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to be able to stop me from bringing you to where I am also. That's what we tell ourselves. That's the gospel. That's what we tell ourselves when we don't feel like reading our Bibles. That's what we tell ourselves when we don't feel like going to church. That's what we tell ourselves when we're afraid. If I do this, if I stand up in the workplace, they're going to make fun of me. You know what? They might. They they probably will. I'm going to let you in on a secret. If you're walking with Jesus, they're already doing that. They're probably already doing that. So it's not going to be nothing new. But you may lose the promotion. You may lose this. You may lose that. You may lose this. You may lose that. But one thing you will never, ever, ever, ever lose is Christ. And He is who you must have. Amen? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we so thank You and so praise You, Father. So difficult to preach Your gospel without weeping, Father, for tears of joy. For, oh Father, what a great and glorious Savior and salvation that You have given us, oh Lord. Oh Father, we so thank You. Oh, Father, help us, oh, Father, to follow in the faith. Help us, oh, Father, to walk behind you when we don't feel like it. Oh, Father, in this moment right now, we're ashamed that we would ever be in a place where we didn't feel like following you, or we would ever be in a place where we didn't feel like coming here. We'd ever be in a place where we didn't feel like reading our Bibles or praying as we have the time to do it. But, oh, Father, you're with us everywhere we go, and you know, you know our weakness. And you don't crush us in our weakness. You lift us up. Oh, Father, help us to preach to ourselves. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves when our feelings are overcoming us, when our feelings are saying, no, put it in park, or our feelings are saying, no, take your foot off the gas and steer over here to the left or to the right. Help us, oh, Father, to overcome those feelings. Help us, oh, oh Lord, to overcome those fears. Help us, O oh Lord, to overcome the skepticism. Help us to overcome these things, O oh Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.